0: you You know, the other thing about King is we know him so much from his speeches and this elevated language that you always use when you're talking to like the masses. In Anderson's dramatization, of course, he's a lot more colloquial. He cusses. He's angry. He's frustrated. And that's stuff you don't really see in the elementary school education you get of him. And that's so important for a book like this because not only does it humanize him, it also shows how exhausting and stressful everything that he's going through is.
1: But we're no one's model minority this is a show about all of you for all of us hey guys in honor of mlk we decided not to simply just put that very famous speech to our hip modern minorities beat instead we decided to really do our homework and do some reading As you no doubt already know by now, I host a couple of other podcasts, one of which is my not-so-secret underground show, Quarantine Comics, where each week, reporter buddy and friend to the pod, Ryan, Joe, and I read some of comics' greatest works, well beyond superheroes. You should definitely check it out at qtdcomics.com if you want to hear me nerding out even more every week and hear about some rad comics that you totally should be reading. Sharon even makes a few guest appearances every now and again. So... For MLK, one graphic novel I've been really wanting to read for a really long time is King, Ho Chi Anderson's 1992 unflinchingly honest and unauthorized biography of Martin Luther King, which goes well beyond the speeches and the legend, and really gets into the real struggles that the man faced personally and professionally on his life's mission. Ryan also snuck in the graphic novel Godhead, another related book by Anderson. So stick around for the entire chat as we compare and contrast the two. And don't worry, Sharon and I will be back next week for more super awesome modern minorities conversations. Right. what do you know about Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, Mostly what he learned in elementary school. How about you? Yeah, I mean, you know, we learn about him without really learning about him. He has this deified nobility about him, but sometimes I don't think we really understand the grueling work, not just the protesting, but the negotiating and the politicking that King had to do to make civil rights a real thing, to make it resonate and actually have a lasting impact in this country. I was just about to say that. Well... This week, in honor of MLK Day, we wanted to read King, Hoche Anderson's critically acclaimed unauthorized graphic biography of the life of Martin Luther King Jr.
0: But then I said, why not also read Hoche Anderson's Godhead, which tells a near-future capitalistic tale that juxtaposes the white corporate and black urban experience against a sci-fi backdrop of uh, finding God and also monetizing God.
1: Yeah. It's a strangely weird and prescient one. All right. Oh, don't you know it. So, Hoche Anderson pretty much has one of the most awesome names ever. He is a London-born creator of Jamaican heritage living in Toronto, and he brings a pretty unique perspective to the handful of independent comics that he's created over the years, likely informed by the sensibilities of who his parents named him after, Ho Chi Minh and Che Guevara. So it was no surprise to see such an unusual premise in Godhead, and a somewhat stark, contrarian, and unflinchingly honest take on a civil rights icon like Martin Luther King Jr.,
0: Yes, and as with Durfback Durf's Kent State and My Friend Dahmer, this was one of those instances where Ruman knew about one book by the creator and I knew about the other.
1: <laughs> I'll let
0: you guess who picked what. I'm Ryan Joe, And I'm Roman Segel. And we are two guys who want to talk to God but have to settle for each other, which is a shame. So, Ruman, what did you think of King? And I'm sorry I'm not God. I do try, though.
1: <laughs> um. Well, look. Uh, I think most folks know I actually grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, so while there is a special kind of racism that permeates the South, growing up in Alabama, you really couldn't get away from the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Everyone has state history, but our state history is rooted in the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement. So I've actually visited Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. King organized I've been to Selma, but, you know, at the same time, there's this weird duality to how we recognize history in the South. Uh, what do you mean? Well, um, <laughs> this this is going to sound really strange, but in Alabama, uh, we recognize it as MLK Robert E. Lee Day. I don't know if that's still the case, but growing oh, that's, up, that was. That's weird. I did not know that. Yeah. And it <laughs> was, that is nuts. Yeah. And honestly, it wasn't something I knew was a strange thing. I didn't realize how fucked up it was until I moved up north, like for work. And it's it's not just about the Confederate statues, but honestly, high schools are named after Confederate heroes. Like two of the biggest high schools where I grew up were Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis, who was the first president of the Confederacy. Uh, you know, we did have schools named after black icons as well, but it's this duality. And it's a dangerous kind of both sides of some that can warp even a brown kid's perspective on on history growing up.
0: Yeah, that, that's kind of, uh, that is, me- I'm just curious, how did it, how, how did it warp your perspective? And then at what point did your perspective change? Do you, at what point did you kind of realize what a weird dichotomy it is to have MLK Day and Robert E. Lee Day? Well, it's
1: like um, a fish doesn't know it's in water, you know? That that's I, I can't mm. explain it. I'll, I'll give you another good example. Um, growing up, we had a lot of flags because my parents um, are of international origin. My dad's from India. My mom, all Indian, was born in Africa and was a refugee to England. And so we had lots of flags. We had American flags. We had Mexican flags. We had Canadian flags. My mom was a school teacher, a social studies teacher. And these are like little flags, like little two by three, you know, little flags on plastic stands. And one of those flags was a Confederate flag because my mom, at some point had to teach Alabama history. So we probably had one from her classroom. Our next door neighbors were the reverse Huxtables, the prominent black family where the dad was a prominent lawyer and the mom was a prominent doctor. And one day I remember hanging out with my neighbor Milton and I was showing him all my flags. I was like, oh, hey, you want some extra flags? And I gave him one of the Confederate flags. And my black neighbor in a mostly white neighborhood had to explain to me why that was fucked up. And we were kids. And I have lots of stories like that. That while I was living there, after I'd left, um, and I would left, and they don't happen as frequently now that I've been out of the South for the better part of almost like twenty years. But it, it, to, to bring it back, it, it's just like you can't deny the impact that MLK had on history, culture, yeah. and society, especially in the South. Well, you know, it's interesting for you, you know, how it got so normalized, and it kind of
0: underscores how huge of a task Martin Luther King Jr. had in front of him when he was trying to change things. The way, you know, we're taught about it in elementary school. And again, I grew up in California, which is a much different environment. We don't have that sort of fetishization of all things confederacy. Um, You know, he's this sort of like angel who kind of came down, gave these amazing speeches, led these marches, and things changed. And so, you know, for us, we didn't see the real danger of that situation or it wasn't ingrained into us like how dangerous of a world he lived in and how much he was trying to change things. And we also certainly didn't understand how much politicking he had to do and how hard it was not just for fear of his physical well being, but also there was this whole thing about his professional reputation, his ability to execute on these ideas to convince people not just white people. But also people within his own organization, or the many organizations. Not the many, yeah, there were many organizations, and he had to kind of get them all together. And you know, he never really fully did. There were a lot of people who thought that he was too soft, and I think that's something that Ho Chi Anderson's book conveys really well. I, I initially thought reading it that it was going to be a deconstruction of King's personality, but that's not really what he's trying to do. I don't think what he's trying to do is he's trying to show how all of the maneuvering. That King had to do in order to position the civil rights movement so it could actually be effective. And he had all of these headwinds from politicians, from people in his own organization, from people in other organizations. And of course, there was the constant threat of violence and being surrounded by people who fucking
1: hated him. Who wanted to kill him. Or he'd be in a room with a certain person. And there was a really good movie um, that came out a couple of years ago, I think, based on a Broadway play called All the Way, where Brian Cranston plays Lyndon Johnson to Martin Luther King in the Civil Rights era. The HBO movie um, is called All the Way. Anthony Mackie, Falcon <laughs> of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, actually plays Martin Luther King. But in the movie, which is absolutely worth watching, you get a feel for the politicking, but you also, and tapes have been released, of the sort of things Lyndon Johnson would say when Martin Luther King had left the White House. Like, and they were not nice things about this man. They were, he was a man that they tolerated for the black vote. And mm-hmm. it was civil rights, I hate to say it, was just as much about horse trading as it was about the moral imperative. Yeah, um, and, it, and it makes you wonder, and it really makes you wonder, we talked about this when we talked about um, Kent State, so when we look back on history, and, and again, this is an interpretive history, but when we look back on our own history, the one that we're living in today, what sort of stuff is actually happening? What are we going to discover when you and I read a graphic novel about <laughs> 2016 to 2022? Right? Like what things are being said? It's um, it's kind of mind-blowing to kind of yeah. see this. Anderson, and I, you know, we should be clear, this is a fictionalized account, right?
0: So I, I don't want to present anderson's version of king as the truth um, the factual truth but what he does convey as you mentioned earlier is the horse trading aspect of the civil rights movement it wasn't all nobility and altruism there was a lot of political opportunism with when king would talk to people he thought were allies like mayor daly for instance and as things happened Sometimes King actually ends up getting screwed when he leaves Chicago in Anderson's recounting. It's not victoriously. He gets a little bit of what he wants, but Daly is able to go back on his word. It's not a complete victory. And that's also something that I think tends to get lost in history. You know, we have these great heroes, but not everything they did turned to gold. There was a lot of failure along the way. And it's interesting, like after... He gets the legislation outlawing segregation passed at the federal level. But after that, it's a much greater struggle as King tries to go beyond the South. Well,
1: it's that last mile challenge that he faces.
0: Yeah, Yeah, right. Because he's not as successful in Chicago. When he's there, he runs up against like, you know, even with the people he's trying to help, they regard him with suspicion. Who the hell are you to come in here and tell us what to do?
1: Yeah, this isn't the South. This isn't the South. This isn't
0: the South. And they're a lot more militant. The groups up there are a lot more militant and aren't
1: as um, sympathetic to King's nonviolent way of doing things. And what's interesting is it's a changing time because a lot of these people almost viewed King as a relic at by this point in the story when he's in Chicago. Yeah. They kind of slowly show the rise of the black power movement. And there were so many echoes. I had to like look at the published date of this book because this book was published in the mid nineties. So starting in 1992, But there's an argument that King has with some of the other civil rights activists in Chicago, some of his allies and some of the people that he's working with there, I believe. And they're talking about the power of slogans. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. help but think about Black Lives Matter. It's a great slogan, but it was a slogan that got twisted and turned against the movement that we live in today. That's where all lives matter came from, or blue lives matter. And it's just so interesting that King was like, I'm not sure how I feel about saying Black power, why can't we just say this instead? This thing that's been working for us so well, why can't we? And King was a student of Gandhi's, right? And To be clear, Gandhi is no saint. But the nonviolence, peaceful protest, which you know he espouses why this works better, why you can't antagonize. And even in his speeches, he talks about it, the speeches that are transcribed in this book. But he's coming up against such headwinds. Yeah, that is a really interesting conversation.
0: In part because the opposing side, you know, I don't think Anderson fully takes King's side in this. The people who are arguing for the Black Power slogan, they have a really good point. And actually, if you read Anderson's end notes, he does mention he, he didn't deify King himself. So he came at this with maybe a more skeptical tone, or maybe like trying to look at all sides rather than trying to kind of king on a pedestal. And you kind of see it in that scene because the the other side that's arguing for, you know, this your nonviolent way, it doesn't really work. You can kind of see that point. And there's this dramatization where King even starts to
1: wonder if nonviolence works as well. Well, you show him getting tired with it multiple yeah, times. Yeah, at, one yeah. point he's like, he's at one point he's like, I'm just going to go on the speaker circuit and make my money. He says that at one point. Mm-hmm. At another point, he's like, fuck it. Maybe violence is the way. He literally is self-doubting. I mean, the man shows up. And it's interesting because even as this fictionalized character, especially towards like the latter third, King starts to seem lost in a movement that's larger than his life, you know, not his legend.
2: That's interesting.
0: uh, Yeah. I think, yeah. No, it's interesting that you point that out because I think that's true, right? Because initially he is really the catalyst for everything up until maybe when Kennedy is assassinated. And then then that's a grueling squeaking it through with lyndon johnson right yeah yeah and and then he he almost feels like one cog in a machine and not everyone is is willing to do it his way and in a way like even towards the end as he's kind of doing these marches there's this feeling of desperation now i don't know if that's factual or if that's anderson's interpretation of king's kind of like final final days his final movements
2: in memphis you mean
0: yeah memphis is, Memphis is pretty factual yeah it, it it but there is this feeling with king like he is exhausted he is tired and
1: he's not getting the kind of result that he wants to get because this is going to sound bad but the society and the culture had moved past him
0: yeah right? that's yeah because in a way that black power messaging continued to resonate after his death as much as he did not
1: approve of it And it's also interesting, to to bring it back to one of the original points at the beginning of this episode, uh, a friend of another pod, Andrew Iden, who worked with uh, the late Congressman John Lewis, another activist in the civil rights movement who wrote March, which is another book I really want to read on this podcast, Um, Andrew talks about the five words of the civil rights movement that most people know, and that's Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. People just assume those are the words and they solved everything. And I think uh, I have a dream too, probably, right? Like those elevated King to this figure and this larger than life person. And then when people started to interact with him, when King started his war on poverty effectively, they were like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, th- that legendary Star Trek stuff, it, that's not going to work. Like it's. They were equating him with the five words, right? Versus, no, the work that has to be done. We have to march in the street. We have to like bring all of our disparate organizations together student groups, church groups, gangs. We all have to march together. It's going to be a long slog. But I feel like everyone just assumed, I don't know. Everyone just assumed that he showed up and everything was kind of better. And that's what happened in Memphis, right? Not his assassination necessarily, but King's allies in the South asked him to come back down to the South and help in Memphis. And he agreed to because it was the right thing to do for sanitation workers who wanted to unionize, blah, blah, blah. But when he went there, chaos erupted because they didn't actually plan for it. They just thought King will show up and everything will magically work. And it clearly didn't.
0: That's interesting, actually. It's the whole idea of the, the legend, right? Mm-hmm. of who you are the mythology really
1: kind of working against you yeah i, I want to actually touch on some of the details uh, that anderson paints about king uh, because there's some really interesting moments and i don't even want to talk about the art yet but it's like there's w- one of the stories that just kind of really hurt me in, in my heart when i read it was he's sitting around the house with his wife and his children
2: oh, and I there's know what an you're ad
1: yeah and there's an ad for a theme park that's opening and his daughter, like any kid who sees a commercial, wants the thing on the TV, and she wants to go to the theme park. And the parents like, kind of look at each other and like, are you going to talk to her? Am I going to talk to her? And I think <laughs> Coretta winds up losing the coin toss, and she has to go tell her daughter why she can't go to this theme park. And even she's like, but my daddy's famous. I mean, even though it's not for black people, can't I get in? And you kind of get the, the parent debrief, which is a real thing, right? Like after the kids are in bed, Coretta's telling Martin, she was crying. She couldn't understand why. And Martin's like, we're going to have to have this conversation with her sometime. And I didn't know when to have it. And I just it just breaks your heart as a parent to like, he was a man who had to deal with this, even though he yeah. was a legend.
0: Um, he punctuates a lot of the grander stuff, the politics and and the marches with these quieter moments with Coretta, and that was that one actually really resonated with me as well. You know where he kind of has to have that conversation for the first time with his daughter. Um, but even other moments, there's there's just this, there's this moment I think where he's just leaning on her and they're just kind of talking. It's very tender and I mean, arguments, kinda, frankly. Argu- there are, yes, there are a lot of arguments as well about what he's doing and how he's always leaving. Um, and again, those moments don't really define the book but they help in a way kind of humanize king in a way you know the other thing about king is we know him so much from his speeches and you know it uses this elevated language that you always use when you're talking to like the masses and when anderson's dramatization of course he's a lot more colloquial he cusses he's angry he's he seems like a cool dude he seems like a cool dude to hang out with and have a podcast with actually yeah, and he loses his temper. You know, stop talking about like how well, I'm always in, oh, in danger. Damn it! You know, stuff like that. And again, like that's stuff that you you don't really see in the elementary school education you get of him. And that's so important for a book like this because not only does it humanize him, it also shows how fucking exhausting and stressful everything that he's going through is.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm almost reminded of a kind of. There's a quote from Star Trek that Spock says. He's like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but it takes a toll on himself. He's effectively given himself over to this thing at, at great cost, right? And it's a testament to his family for kind of keeping their shit together and staying with him through everything that he was doing. But Coretta, like, there's like this argument when they're like, when she's pregnant and they're walking around and she's like, mad as hell at him. And she doesn't actually want to have the argument and he's like picking a fight. And um, yeah. It, uh...
0: Yeah. I, I kind of wanted, you know, I, so we both really liked this book, but um, you know, it it was not an easy read. It's certainly not a fast read. I, I don't know if, how it was for you. I mean, I had to take my time reading it because Anderson doesn't really give you a lot of easy sequences. In this, there's a lot of times where you are stitching, where you know you have to kind of figure things out from the context. It's you have work. To do a lot it's of, work. It's work. Yeah, it's work. you have to bring a lot to this book. You have to figure out who's talking to whom. Which actually, I do think was unintentional and probably one of the book's weaknesses. And that's kind of going to the art. But there are times when he kind of just drops you in a scene, and you kind of have to figure out, okay, who who are the parties here? What's being negotiated?
1: Right. But in that aspect, I actually kind of appreciated. Well, you had to work for it. It felt like you're... Yeah. At some, I mean, the, the art is not a literal art. It's this blocky, black and white, expressionistic... It's like collage, item. right? A lot of times it's like Character, collage. Character, yeah. But yeah. so you have to work for it. And I felt like, at times, I felt like I was walking through a museum exhibit. Not because it's about King, but the way... It's like, when there's this exhibit that you know you're supposed to see, that's really important. And you go see it at a museum, but you've only got tickets to see it for those two hours... And you're not going to get to see it again. So it's was like, okay, this is important. I need to process. I need to work through it. The first time I tried to read this a while back when I discovered this a few months ago when I wanted to suggest it for the podcast, it was a slog and I was tired. I, I couldn't get through it. But then I kind of had to force myself to sit through this for two nights to get through it because I knew it was important. I knew it was work. I felt like I was in a museum and I'm hearing all these perspectives that I might not get the chance to hear again. Yeah. Um,
0: I think it, it, it does need to be work because the whole civil rights movement was work, right? You know, you, you know, it, it it's-
1: Yes, we, we, we have, are just like those civil rights icons because we read this book.
0: <laughs> I know that sounds sort of flippant, but no, yeah, I, I am I, kind yeah. of serious about that in that he's like, well, he doesn't want to make this easy for you as the reader. And of course, he's not going to be able to put you through exactly what the king went through and everyone went through. Of course not. But he doesn't want to just feed it to you. He wants to make you work. And so when you kind of do figure out, it is sort of gratifying. I do think sometimes the book is unintentionally difficult to read. I think sometimes like not knowing who's talking to whom. And, and I think this is because from an art standpoint, there are a lot of these like long shots where you have like this overhead shot, maybe of two figures in suits talking. And because they look identical, you don't know who's saying who's well, talking in to some, whom. Or in some cases it was hard to time. tell if
1: they were white or black. Yeah. In some cases
0: it was difficult to tell if they were, if they were white or black. Um, the, that actually changed after the Kennedy assassination when mm-hmm. he introduced color. And I don't know if that was just Ho Chi Anderson trying to make a statement there or if he just was like, I can do
1: color now. Well, it was released but, as as three issues or three volumes. And what's interesting, yeah, at some point halfway through the book, King's speech is in blue. And so you. Always yeah. And that's I
0: actually kind of appreciated the color coding because that actually made it very clear who was talking
1: and when. I What I will say about the art, though, it was almost kind of like this interpretive jazz. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it like erupted from the page, almost. And be it the high contrast, everything being kind of flat, skin color was difficult to determine. You had to read the words to be like, would a white person, this is the work, would a white person be saying this or would a black person be saying this? And so it was difficult, but that aesthetic was striking. And to your point, Ryan, it was kind of symbolic, I think.
0: Yeah, actually, I like your comparison to jazz because it, it's not like a, a conventionally beautiful book where you like like look at the pages and, and you're just like, oh, my God, this is just virtuosic. But in a way, it, it also kind of is because of this combination of still images. Sometimes he uses very thick, bold black inks. Sometimes it's kind of just it's, it's painted. Um, it's this assemblage of different artistic techniques so I'm not sure what it's all meant to add up to if anything or if it's just Ho Chi Anderson kind of again being like I think these are just really cool ways of telling the story visually in terms of just kind of maintaining your interest because honestly there are a lot of talking heads throughout King (laughs) it actually is very effective because it keeps you interested
1: it draws you in especially when the art style changes you're like oh what's happening now? Um, what in some moments, some of those talking heads, it was documentary style. It was like a nine-panel grid of mm-hmm. nine different talking heads, all processing the exact same moment in a point of view, and they were all disagreeing with each other on yeah. the take of what King did or what was happening at the moment. Yeah, that that kind of just underscores how polarizing King was, not just to the people who
0: were you know racist and all that stuff, but again, even to people in the movement, uh, yeah. in the movement, and. Being to people who he was trying to court in terms of
1: getting them on 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 his side. So one thing I really admired about this book, and it, it's a small thing. This is going to sound really dark. But how King's assassination is handled. Because he was assassinated in Memphis. And it, there's a couple of moment things about it. We all know King was assassinated. I actually couldn't remember if he died in Memphis or Chicago. So for the latter third, or even like the last 15% of the book when things are really going sideways and south for King, I'm just like waiting for it to happen. So there was so much tension at the end, and I probably should have known he was assassinated in Memphis. Spoiler alert on history. But then he's assassinated and the book just ends. Boom, you're done. Because honestly, there's like this sense of drama to end the story abruptly, leaving all that unfinished business around us. Because, you know... It's our job now. It's over. What are you going to fucking do? Yeah, right. It literally
0: just ends once he's assassinated. Story is over. And I appreciate he doesn't have this sort of like, oh, this is what he meant to the movement, which Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. often happens with these sort of biographical stories where the character dies prematurely. Uh, But anything else would be unnecessary. Everyone knows what King meant. And so it, it is kind of appropriate that his
1: life is just literally just cut short. And that is the end. Well, speaking of books that were cut short, let's go to the future, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because you pulled a Rusty Brown on me again, dude.
2: Come on.
0: Yep. So for the, the other book that we read is Hoche Anderson's Godhead, Volume 1, which is very, very different from Ho Anderson's. Does,
1: hang on. Today. To be clear, Volume 1 is not in the title, Ryan. If Volume 1 was in the title, I might have pushed back on having to read this book.
0: <laughs> well, that's <laughs> why I didn't mention that it was only half a book. <laughs> um and anderson is working on the second volume which is going to be the finale of this of this
1: is it is it obligatory that when all of these authors publish the second half of books that we read on Courtney comics that we have to bring them back for an episode i wouldn't
0: mind doing that i would love to read godhead and two and i'm definitely going to want to read rusty brown too whenever that happens though
1: by then we might be old men and maybe unable to read we are and, and then we way. can actually comment on the historical graphic novelizations of 2020 <laughs> to 2022, the quarantine comics era.
0: But I, you know, I, I I wanted to read Godhead along with King because I'm always interested in seeing how an author, a writer, an illustrator like Ho Chi Anderson with a very distinct voice handles very different genres And so you have this biography of Martin Luther King. And then here you have this futuristic political thriller about a corporation that discovers the means to talk to God. And of course, as corporations do, they try to monetize it. They try to, or they, well, they try to figure out what to do with it. And I'm sure like monetization is a big aspect of it. And you definitely see some parallels. There's, of course, there's the racial aspect of it. On the one hand, there is a, a Aryan CEO, But on the other hand, there is also this black man who is tasked with kidnapping him for some unknown reason and unknown purpose. But the other thing that was really interesting to me about Godhead was also the way he tells the story. And it was similar to King, where you kind of get fragments, or he kind of drops you in in the middle of the scene and you kind of have to figure shit out. You know, he'll drop you in the middle of like a boardroom. And that's when you slowly figure out that everyone really freaking hates the CEO who has just come back from being kidnapped. And that's kind of similar to King in a way, because you have that sort of oblique way of telling that story where you are dropped into a scene and you have to do the work to figure out what the hell is going on. Now, we just talked about that in King about like, well, why we think that works and why you have to do work to understand what's happening in King. And he's mimicking a similar style in Godhead. Which, of course, is a much lighter story in terms of, you know, it's a political thriller.
1: Well, it's lighter and it's it's more literal. Yeah, to your point. I mean, it reads like a screenplay almost to a new Netflix drama. What was interesting was, to your point, when this author with this point of view jumps genres and decides to inject his point of view into this. So the contrast of and this is near, this is meant to kind of be near future fiction, which some of these kind of tropes are very accurate to today. So it's like, okay, here's a 1% white guy in a very kind of vanilla board. And it's, they're almost characters of these tropes. And then here's this black yeah. guy who's fought for his country, who, and they do reveal why he kidnaps the CEO, because he was just uh, in kind of a flashback moment he was getting his life back together after coming back from the war, from fighting for his country, and he gets into a car accident with this white guy who just kind of throws money at mm-hmm. him, this yeah, one percenter. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's really pissed. He's prone to violence. He beats him up. He goes to jail. And later on, after being jailed, he comes back to kick his ass. And it's the opening scene where same thing happens. The, the white CEO guy tries to throw money at the problem, buy his way out of the situation, and I can't remember what he was saying, but he was like, I don't think you understand how this works. I don't want your money. I'll quote the page, you know, the the, the kidnapped CEO. Again, if you simply tell me how much you want, I'm competent. This mm-hmm. ain't about money. I don't want your fucking money. You people just throw that shit around because it doesn't mean nothing to you. You don't understand what it does to folks. Either that or you don't give a fuck. And... That moment, that first scene was arguably, in my opinion, one of the most powerful scenes in the book. I didn't know what was going on. It kind of revealed itself later on when we found out why he was like this. At first, I thought he was just this dark, mysterious killer guy who's above money. But years of his life had been taken away. And I I think what Anderson's doing is he's processing trauma and aggression that a culture feels and injecting it into this story injecting it into Hmm. this kind of like sci-fi narrative and i we don't know where how it's going to end you know we don't know the means of why he's recruited by this shadowy cia like cabal to take out the corporation but yeah i don't know that's what yeah that's what i meant like what
0: is that group's motivation in terms of but again that's just a plot point that i'm sure will be divulged later on but 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 you said earlier but, but,
1: but, but the question is i wonder ryan is the plot point in part two going to deliver on kind of the symbolism in the commentary, or is it just going to be kind of a sci-fi plot resolution? I don't know. I mean, given
0: Hosea Anderson's ambitions, I would certainly hope the former, um, especially given what he sets up. And there's like a lot of very interesting biblical allusions also. I mean, obviously, uh, there's the corporation is literally this giant tower that looks like the artistic representations of the Tower of Babel. And of course, this corporation is has this tool where they're literally trying to f- get it to work so that they can talk to God. I wonder what's going to happen to that freaking tower. <laughs>
1: uh. <laughs> Grant Morrison in his JLA run had a, a story arc named Babel. Which which one was that one? Oh was, wait, that was the Angels, right? That was the no, Angels. No, 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 no. It's when Rachel Ghoul removes something in our limbic system's ability to talk.
0: But actually, you know, I mean, Anderson does kind of have that sort of weird, unique sensibility that I think Grant Morrison has as well. I mean, he definitely has this sort of like madcap style, especially with Godhead, right? He's bringing in a whole bunch of weird genre elements while also trying to tell a serious story. Like there's a scene where the director of security introduces the CEO to these new protector robots, And they look like, they look ridiculous. (laughs) They look like the sort of robots you'd see coming out of Image Comics from the 90s. And there's no commentary about that. It's just there. And I'm sure that Anderson knows it's fucking ridiculous. And it's there. And it's in in this very serious scene where the CEO and the head of security talking about, like, self-protection. So there's an
1: element of the ridiculousness in Godhead. Well, even, even like the elite Marines training together... And the showers and the pranking and the, you know, no holds barred, like cage match on the beach fight. Yeah, yeah. And this is the problem I had with it. Like, I know there's something deeper going on, but he's throwing all these familiar narrative tropes together and Frankensteining them. And, you know, I I think some of it is also the art. I, I just I really have to pick on the art because, look. Hoche Anderson is clearly someone who commands artistic talent. and But when he does his kind of literal style of what a 90s comic should look like, that's literally what this felt like, like a bad image comic, just the art style. Versus, and then you flip to the end and you find out that he actually wanted to paint the whole thing. The first scene is all painted. That's why it's so visceral. But when you see the other pages of the paint that he wanted to apply on top of these black and white pencils it would have had this more kind of abstract, removed, ethereal feel that King did have. And so that was another thing. So smashing together the tropes, being a very kind of literal art style that's kind of felt like a 90s comic, it pulled me out of it a little too much. And then the story ended early. So I don't know, man.
0: Yeah, that actually um, is kind of what worked for me. (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) You know, but but I, I mean, I take your criticism, right? Like f- the action sequences are really weird and stilted. It um, he's not great at drawing the body in motion. It was not great. Me at doing of the
1: art from Terror Assaulter, that book. That's that what I was
0: talking reviewed. about. Yes, we didn't review Terror Assaulter. And we Assault should It's terrible. It's I terrible. fucking loved. So I love Terror Assaulter. Amwad, which Amwad stands for One Man War on Terror. It's a completely weird ass satire that came out soon after nine eleven. Of course, it was published by Fantagraphics as well, but the art is very very similar. And um, it's crude. I don't know how it's to describe it's crude. Yeah. yeah. But to me, that's part of the charm and part of the interest. The fact that, you know, during the scene in the barracks, there's this dwarf who's running around with a grenade launcher telling everybody what to do. And everyone's taking it really seriously. Um, so well, do you I, think the, the,
1: art, the, the art itself in Godhead is a satirical kind of commentary? Or do you think that's just how he draws when he does it?
0: I mean, honestly, I think that's just how he draws it. Um, no, I, I didn't get a sense that it's, that it's a satirical commentary. I guess we we're, were talking about with King, right? You know, suddenly it turns into just color. And is that a commentary? Or did he just like, I just wanted to color these pages. You know, I, I don't necessarily think every artistic decision has a real reason behind it. Other than maybe he
1: just thought it was like a fun thing to do at the time. But I don't actually don't think the art is a satirical commentary. Because when you go look at some of the scenes... That were painted on top of the original pencils. Like it just adds a different veneer to the scenes. I think had the whole book been done in this kind of painted shadowy style. It would have delivered it in a much different way. And we talk about delivery. Like the pacing in which you read it. The format in which you read it. On a tablet. In issues. You know all these things. The size of the book. It would have made me take it more seriously. I think. I think I agree with you because the line
0: work is, as you mentioned, very, very literal. It's it's these big, bold, black lines versus the the painted work. It almost kind of feels like a dream, right? Like you've sort of
1: been dropped in this alternate reality. And this whole book, if you just explained the plot to someone, this whole book feels like a bad, weird dream. And it should be. Yeah. And if he
2: had
0: painted it all the way through, it would have been sort of like a weird dream of political or espionage thriller, and then, yeah, once you start doing kind of the line work, it starts to blur the line. Like, wait, is this is this? Are you being serious? Like a comic? Yeah. Are you being serious? Yeah. yeah, it's a weird. Isn't that weird how that works? Like, he could have literally, if he had just kind of painted over, like, the, instead of doing inks, if he had just used paints, well, it would have had a completely it, different impact.
1: I'm guessing it's a time thing,
0: right? I mean, it. Oh it's yeah, much more time I mean, intensive. I mean, it took him forever to do King. I don't. If you read the end notes, you can you can actually see him slowly start to like go insane, like. Like 2001, I'm still working on this fucking thing. (laughs) Why? You know, I'm sure like he's probably like there's maybe some of that's going through his mind with Godhead. Um, But yeah, I, I think, yeah, a lot of what you didn't like, I liked. But also I've mentioned this before. I really like comics and movies that put me in the head of the creator where it's sort of like this is a very unique way of doing things. I don't think anyone else in the world would have done it this way. And I don't understand your creative decisions and I don't always agree with them, but they're fucking weird and unexpected. And I appreciate that about you. There's this director named Richard Stanley, who does really odd movies like Dust Devil. Um, He also did a futuristic thriller, the name of which eludes me at the moment. He did this H.P. Lovecraft adaptation with Nicolas Cage recently called The Color Out of Space. And again, he's a very weird director and he's not a director i'd recommend to most people but he's a director whose movies i always find so fascinating and in that aspect i find hoche anderson's godhead very interesting in that respect as well even if i don't always understand why he's making the decisions that he's making i always find that exhilarating right when i'm kind of dropped into this guy's weird fever dream and i'm like all right what the fuck story is this it's kind of weird but let's just
1: see what you got The guy makes very interesting swings, and I I love the fact that he's able to take, even though he might not like it, significant amounts of time to try shit out. Right, like he's not beholden to kind of like this monthly deadline. Versus, I want to try something big. I want to make a big swing, and I'm going to try it. And it's not going to be for everyone, but it's art. It's actual art. So, right, the question I always ask. Um, And I have my own answer to it, but uh, would you recommend these books to someone?
0: Yeah, well, yes, I would. But I also would probably be careful who I recommend it to. Like if you just want like a fun read, Godhead probably isn't it. If you want like a really easy digestible biography of Martin Luther King Jr., King ain't it. So it kind of depends on what I guess you want to understand about Martin Luther King. Similarly with Godhead, what are what sort of story are you looking for? Are you looking for just a light breezy read, or are you looking for something that's kind of weird Mm. and
1: offbeat? What's interesting is, um, so I was able to get King from the library, but Godhead I couldn't, so I bought a used copy of Godhead. And (laughs) Godhead isn't the book I want to own. I'm literally about to buy a used copy of King online because I want this on my bookshelf. I feel like King is required reading, not just for schools, but for everyone. it's You need to dig a little deeper than the five words of the civil rights movement and read King and read March. And Godhead, it just feels, again, let's wait till part two comes out, right? Maybe there's this bigger meta-narrative that has to come together, but it felt kind of like a disposable, interesting premise, but this kind of disposable story because he kind of powered through it and just got it done, right? Even from an art perspective versus Delaying and taking longer, like he was allowed to do with King. I so, don't think
0: it was disposable. Like as you said, he's kind of working out a lot of out a
1: lot of no, his- but the art as well. Like it was a thing that he spent less time on than he probably did other stories that he's done. I've not read his other like three or four works, but it's just interesting. Like you know, I originally wanted to make this episode just about King, and I'm open to kind of exploring where the author goes with something else, but. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like King is the kind of book I'll revisit when Godhead Part Two comes out. I'll probably revisit Part One before I go read Part Two. But um, yeah, I don't know. Ask me another question, Ruman. Ryan, what are we
0: reading next week? (laughs) Next week we're reading the manga Vegabond, and it is about a real life samurai, and basically about his life. It begins with him in the depths of utter despair, and Throughout the epic saga, you kind of see who he eventually becomes, how he becomes this sort of legendary thinker and warrior. And the reason we're reading it is because it was something that my cousin Sam, uh, who killed himself a few years ago, really had read and really responded to. Um, and so, yeah, part of the reason we're reading Vagabond is as an homage to, uh, to my cousin. Now... There are multiple volumes of this book, uh, but we are only going to be reading the collected volume one, which I believe is the first three volumes. So It's a phone book, and I cannot wait to read it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too.
1: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. Qtdcomics at gmail.com. We give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel.
0: And I am and have always been Ryan Jones.